Welcome to the Vanderbilt Ventures Insights Podcast, the show featuring innovators, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors from the greater Vanderbilt and Nashville communities. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Bertram. Dr. Bertram is the founder of Therapisics and the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, past president of Paradigm Health, and current CEO and founder of Naris Health. In addition, Dr. Bertram is an investor, mentor, and professor at Vanderbilt University's Owen Graduate School of Management, where he teaches courses to full-time and executive MBA students on launching new ventures and healthcare innovation. Dr. Bertram, thank you very much for being here with us today. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about uh, Dr. Bertram's first foray into entrepreneurship, which of course was Therapisics. Uh, Therapisics was a specialty rehabilitation company which designed healthcare and workers' compensation solutions for employers, HMOs, insurers, and integrated provider organizations. Uh, the company was ultimately acquired by Matrix Rehabilitation, uh, division of Beverly Enterprises. So, Dr. Bertram, um, at this time, this was your, your first foray into entrepreneurship, and you were working at a Hospital Corporation of America, which is a great job uh, by by most people's um, standards. So, what what series of events was it that made you realize uh, that it was time to venture out on your own and, and try something independent? Well, I had been at HCA for about ten years and worked on a number of innovation projects for the corporation, and I really loved the idea of starting something new. It was probably the most enjoyable part of my job. I had a done an undergraduate degree in physical therapy. I was uh, My job at the time at HCA was contracting on behalf of our company with all the various insurers in the market. And as I met with these insurers and asked what sort of problems they were trying to solve, they would bring up rehabilitation and physical therapy as one of the things they were trying to solve. As, um, as I studied that more, I began to realize a real opportunity existed in the space mm-hmm. uh, to partner with payers. Uh, historically, physical therapists were employees of hospitals or a physician office. Uh, so I saw an opportunity to be disruptive with a business model and uh, do something a little different that could solve a problem for the health plans. And so as you were preparing um, to launch there, uh, could you walk us through a little bit of, of your thought process in terms of getting off the ground and leading up to launch? Was that a, a very long period of time, or did you sort of launch into it and learn by doing? I spent about six months preparing for a launch. Um, I met with some advisors locally here. Uh, I flew to New York several times. I ended up meeting a gentleman there, Walter Channing, who was very interested in the space as well. He had been following the rehab industry for quite some time. Um, After four or five visits together, he decided he would like to lead the investment for us. He introduced me to the Rockefeller Family Fund called Venrock and another private equity fund in Boston named Highland Capital. And the three of those funds uh, agreed to fund our idea. At the time, we were me and a PowerPoint so uh, I look back on that, and I'm, I'm quite amazed that they put so much confidence in a 30-year-old, um, but I'm really glad they did. And uh, that really got the momentum going. We, I'd been studying the market and built a business model, but uh, with their commitment to funding it, that became uh, the moment that the idea became something real. 
And so when you came to that point where you were, were looking for capital to get off the ground, was that a really intimidating process, having really been the first time you'd gone through with that? And how has that, has that changed for you going forward? So I had always been someone's employee up to that point. Um, it's a very sobering moment when people give you their money and you put it in an account and your job is to multiply it five to seven times what they gave you. Right. It, it took about a week for all that to sink in what I had just signed up for. And there were moments of excitement and moments of complete terror uh, those first few months um, hmm. trying to get that off the ground because, again, it was a PowerPoint and myself. So hiring the team, uh, visiting with health insurers to find our first customer in our first market, uh, knowing I had about two to three months to get something happening um, creates a sense of urgency that's probably unparalleled by anything else in your life. Right. So you mentioned uh, your first customer. Um, who was your first customer? And can you talk about that process of, of onboarding them and, and getting them to, to trust you and, and commit to you? Sure. Uh, I had met a, a group of physical therapists in Denver. We wanted to start there because it was a very strong U.S. market for rehabilitation, both because of winter accidents in the snow and on the ski slope and summer accidents, uh, uh, mountain biking, uh, Olympic training camp nearby, military posts nearby, and a fairly young, affluent population that was well insured. All those were good elements for a good market. Um, the first health insurer we contracted with was Cigna Health Plans. They had uh, an interest in sharing risk with provider organizations, and this was early 90s and not many people were doing risk sharing. Mm -hmm. um, so our willingness to do that and carve away all of their rehabilitation costs and give them a fixed cost per month was really a key driver in Cigna wanting to do this. Um, they signed a, a letter of, of intent with us at the time and gave us about 120 days to get a rehabilitation network in place and get it credentialed and ready for them to use. And the commitment was if we could get it done in that window of time, then it would go live and we would be their sole provider of rehabilitation. Wow. So that was our first customer, our first market, our first business model. Um, it was structured as what is known in healthcare as an IPA, an independent practice association, meaning I didn't own the physical therapy clinics at the time. I simply contracted with them for a fixed rate in order to do the service. So as I was um, thinking of it as an intermediary between the health plan and the provider, except I was taking risk. Right. And so um, the, those geographic considerations that you mentioned, was that something that you had in mind the whole time or that evolved as you had raised some money and realized I'm, I'm on the hook to make this happen sooner than later? Uh, well, I started by just looking at markets where there are a number of outpatient independent physical therapy practices. Um, overlaid that with markets where I knew health plans already from my time at HCA, so I didn't have to do cold calls. I could call on people I already knew. Um, I looked for markets that were um, uh, had the dynamics, whether it was a a good insurer base or employment base or something that would give us a reason to believe we could be successful there that weren't dominated already by corporations owning physical therapy. So our, our short list, there were about eight cities. Um, Denver was our first city 
that was followed by Seattle, and then we went to Dallas-Fort Worth, starting in Arlington at the airport and spreading in both directions toward Dallas and Fort Worth. And then our final market before the company was sold was Pittsburgh. So it's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of geographic diversity there, and I can imagine that that would be difficult to to manage uh, as it that continued to grow. The difficulty was my travel. Um, in each market, we set it up as a business unit. Uh, so the corporate office provided the back office support here, but each of these markets had a local president who would oversee the activity in that market. They were all structured as, as individual limited liability corporations uh, just to keep risk local. So I really had uh, a very core group of operators who ran the day-to-day of their market and my job was to provide them strategy and capital and human labor uh, marketing and support. Right. So uh, talking about uh, those operators, obviously the people that you choose to work with, especially in the nascent stages of a business, are really important. How did you approach um, selecting the, the people that you trusted to help you get it off the ground expand? Uh, it was a, a process of meeting various practitioners who had grown therapy practices of more than two or three locations. I could tell they were already entrepreneurial. They enjoyed the business side of rehabilitation more than the clinical side. Um, and I looked for individuals who I believe were philosophically aligned with where I thought the market was going to move and believe they could lead not only because of their knowledge, but their sort of emotional intelligence of the market and the practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, you want somebody leading a market that immediately um, provides a sense of trust to the people you're going to be working with in the market. And I got very lucky. I found a, a group of leaders who had already that reputation. They already uh, had trust from their colleagues. They were clinically very smart. They were business savvy. They were aligned with what I wanted to do. Um, and so it was a matter of providing them both uh, equity in the company and an opportunity to run a market. Um, and through that that process, I really found four outstanding leaders to do this job. Are those people that you still work with in any capacity today, or how is that? played out down the road so I don't work with them in a capacity anymore most of them have stayed in the rehabilitation industry and I have not stayed in healthcare, but not specific rehabilitation I'm on the board of another physical therapy company but I'm not the operator Um, but I've remained friends with all of them and um, we still keep in touch and check in with each other four or five times a year to see how everybody's doing and I think when you spend five to seven years together building a company and you you survive that and all the scar tissue it brings um you either really hate each other or really care for one another (laughs) we got really lucky and we all really cared for each other and that's transcended time because if you think about it this was over 20 years ago 25 years ago wow so to have a friendship that was purely a business relationship for five or six years that has transcended that much time it's a deeply meaningful and personal relationship absolutely so are there anything uh, any moments in particular where you really had a breakthrough or made uh, a big decision that 
you were maybe not entirely certain about at the time, but ended up being a really uh, a changing moment for you as you were expanding and sort of trying to find uh, consistency and, and success? Oh, yes. Um, the business started with me and our company being an intermediary. Uh, what we realized a year into this is that we would never grow revenue fast enough or never affect change in a clinic fast enough to keep up with the progressive nature of what we were trying to do uh, in the industry. So we made a, a big decision. Um, and that decision was funded by GE Capital, and we decided that we would approach our 20 best performing practices in Denver. We, had, we were contracted with about 100 and offered to buy 51% of their business. They keep 49, so we'd be partners, but I'd we would own the majority so we could roll it up financially. Um, and we would fill their stores first with patients before we did everyone else. And in turn, they would commit to be more progressive in the way they thought about treatment and scheduling and office hours and being open in evenings and weekends and all the things that a healthcare consumer was going to demand that traditional practices would not do. Um, it was a sentinel moment because... Uh, uh, just before announcing that, I would say all 100 clinics in the market liked us a lot. The minute we said we we're going to buy a certain number, uh, a large majority didn't care for us anymore, but we were a, a pipeline of patients and revenue for them, and so there was nowhere else to go. Um, but we affected that. We bought, I think, 16 of those 20 and then added another 10 we ended up doing the same thing in Dallas-Fort Worth and the same thing in Pittsburgh. And it allowed us to 8, 9x our revenue and grow our margins from single digits to over 30% cash flow margins. Uh, so it went from an acute company to a real business right. with that one decision. Wow. And did you have anything, uh, any moment in particular where you really thought that you were facing failure in any particularly dark times that, you know, ultimately, uh, of course, we know now that it, it was a success, but that you really thought that you were, were going to go under, and how did you get through those those times? Uh, so, I had two that I recall. I'm sure there were many more, but you tend to forget the bad and remember the good, <laughs> but I had two especially painful ones that were so deeply painful I, I won't ever forget. Uh, one was that we needed to do a second round of financing. We had done an A round and we wanted to do a B. A, a large fund out of Menlo Park, California had committed to put the money in. Um, we had virtually completed all the documents work necessary. And I remember the morning I got a call that they were having trouble with their portfolio and four or five of their other companies and they reneged on the investment. At the time, I had about two payrolls left in the bank, and we were barely break-even because of the IPA model where we were the broker in the middle, and we were trying to grow. And so it's one of those hard moments where you stare at the ceiling at night and try to find how many clever ways can I go raise some money really fast. Um, raising money isn't the hard part if you have a good, legitimate business. Raising it fast is the hard part. Uh, but we successfully pulled that off, um, and uh, it was a very painful journey. Uh, it cost us some equity to do that I wish we hadn't had to forfeit, but 
the alternative was to not have a business. And so we did it. And uh, in, in the long run, it worked out fine. But that was one especially painful moment. I'd say the, the second one of those um, is when GE uh, came in to make the investment so we could buy practices. Um, the very first person I had hired was a friend I'd known a long time. Um, and Paul was our VP of finance and we had kind of talked all along he would be our CFO and he acted as our CFO um, when GE finished their due diligence they were ready to make a significant investment in the company they were going to put in 10 to 15 million in the business but oh, wow. their only requirement was that I hire a real CFO so I had to tell my friend who had helped me build the business for the last five years he would not be keeping the job he had he would certainly stay employed in his pay but he'd have a new boss um, because as, as I thought about it if I turned down money from a, an organization like GE over a staff issue I would never raise any more money um, I tried every way I could to to make that friendship stay whole and it it didn't it dissolved and Paul moved on okay so we, we talked about people um, a while ago and and you just touched on the impact that your investors have had on the business and the role that, that they play. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the dynamic uh, working with, with those early investors and then subsequent investors and how that goes back and forth between making decisions around personnel and the direction of the business, how you reconcile that? Sure. Happy to do that. The I think most entrepreneurs underestimate how much impact an investor will have on their business. They primarily see them as a source of capital and somebody to report their financials to every month. If only it were that simple. Um, investors have strong opinions of the market. They have strong opinions of what you should strategically do. Um, and though they have a lot of clout associated with those opinions because they are your financial reputation to the investment community and likely your source of future capital and often determine how and when you will exit. Um, I got very lucky at Therapisics. Uh, the investors I had, I look back and I'm, I often marvel that as a young man who had never had a company, how on earth did I get such a blue chip lineup of investors? Um, and they were very fair, didn't always do what I wanted us to do, but in the long run we made, I think, very smart decisions together. Uh, but it, I had to learn that while I was the CEO and I would get the last word, they weighed in heavily on their opinions. And if I was going to do something different than they recommended, I better be damn sure uh, and it better work. Um, so those were some of the key lessons learned early. I've, I've certainly since then dealt with some investors over time that were less than that quality. And so uh, I continue to learn even today that the investment relationship, the commitment they have to the industry and to the team and to the market ultimately determine your success because without their involvement and engagement, you'll be less than you could have been. Right. Um, so many people uh, like to glorify some of the higher points of, of starting and scaling and eventually exiting a business, but the reality is often harsher than that and what would you say were the biggest uh, pitfalls that you encountered I know we had touched on some some darker moments but at a high level um, what are some things that you wish you had had known starting out that you've now come to know through experience 
Oh, wow. So, I actually think for most first-time entrepreneurs, ignorance is bliss. Because if you knew up front everything, you probably would never do it. Um, but once you've done it once, you say, oh, that wasn't so bad. I'll do it again. Until you're in the middle of it, you say, no, it really was that bad, but I'm almost through. I'll do it right. again. Um, and, and that's really the mindset, I think, is, is a persevering mindset. Uh, the, the surprises is the toll it would take on my personal life. Um, hmm. The amount of my time that would no longer be mine, the fact that I would live in a glass house and everybody had opinions, um, from my employees to my family to investors to the business community to the vendor partners I worked with and providers, and their opinion was made up largely of assumptions and minimally on fact, but I was not at liberty to share completely everything going on. And so you learn to live with some fairly jaded opinions of you. Um, that aren't accurate, but you have no power to affect those opinions. Right. So to close out our first episode here, what was the most memorable uh, instance for you, I think, that stayed with you as you've gone through various other businesses and, and pursuits uh, years later? What was what really stuck with you throughout uh, building Therapisics and the rest of your life? I think the most memorable day is I was in New York at UBS. Uh, we had hired them as our investment banker. Uh, the, our, our investors, it came time to sell the company. We had a hostile bid from a Southern-based rehabilitation company that wanted to own the business. We knew it was probably time to make an exit. We had grown. So I was at the table meeting with potential buyers all day. And I told our story, I think, five times that day. And uh, as I finished that day, and I reflected on how proud I was of how far that idea had come from a you know, 20-page PowerPoint to something that all of these buyers wanted to own, so much so that one company was trying uh, in not the nicest way to get it, um, made me feel real good about the work the team had done, uh, my opportunity to help lead and shape their view, and that we really had created a success. Well, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us uh, here today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll hope to have you back again sometime soon. And tune in next time for another episode of the Vanderbilt Ventures Insights Podcast.